John chapter 3. Now, we began John chapter 3 last week, and it had much to do with um, the central figure of John chapter 3, at least the opening sections of it. And that is, as I expressed, the tragedy of Nicodemus. Uh, He comes in to Jesus by night and uh, approaches him and asks him a series of questions, engaging him so that he can construct who it is Jesus of Nazareth is. As Nicodemus reminds Jesus, he comes as a representative of the Sanhedrin and he says, look, we understand and we know who you are. We know that nobody can do the signs that you're doing unless God is with them. And the idea is that we can see the signs and so we know there's an apparent authority that stands with you. In fact, it is God himself as Nicodemus pointed out, that is with Jesus. But Jesus turned the whole discussion around to something else and saying that it is not enough just to recognize signs. It is not just enough to recognize the identity of Jesus. Something much grander than admitting reality or observational perception is necessary. Jesus says you must actually be born again to even see the kingdom of God. It is not enough for you to see Jesus of Nazareth walking around in Galilee to be born again. You must be born again. And so the question comes back from Nicodemus, how in the world can someone be born again when he is old? How in the world can he be born from above? How does that happen? Jesus said to him again, look, It's not even just a matter of this to see the kingdom of God. If you're wanting to even enter the kingdom of God, you must be born of both water and of spirit in order to enter the kingdom of God. Those things that are born of the flesh are flesh by very nature of their definition. But those things that are born of capital S spirit are spirit. And so when Jesus is speaking to Nicodemus about these things, he's trying to draw out natural pictures to depict supernatural realities. Birth, wind, the idea of the fact that you cannot see wind, but you can see the effects of it. And he says, look, same way as it is with how the Spirit of God works. You see the effects of what he's doing, but you can't see him. The same thing with the kingdom of God. You can see the effects of what it is doing. You can see the signs. But in order to truly see the kingdom of God, one must be born from above. One must be born again. It is not merely a change of heart or a change of mind. It is a change of life. You see, John was not writing his gospel to say, hey, I'm writing these things so that you will know that Jesus of Nazareth was sent from God and that that by believing in him, you can have a new set of rules to make your life successful. No. What was the point of the Gospel of John? He says in John chapter 20, verse 31, I'm writing these things so that you may know that Jesus is the Son of God and that by believing you may have life in his name. What is the beginning of life but birth? What is the type of life that is discussed? It is that very life that he says in the very opening prologue of John, in the word was life. And that life was the light of men. 
And as we come to the first instance of the gospel being depicted in the gospel of John, we will be constructing this reality of what it is to have everlasting life. We use the terminology almost like a Christian lingo, eternal life. It's like a single word almost, or everlasting life. We use it when we quote John 3.16, which if you'll recognize, we stopped just short of today. We use that terminology and we don't really think about the reality of it because physical life, as you and I know it, ends. It has a distinct beginning at birth and it has a distinct end. And what Jesus is expressing is the type of life he's giving has a distinct beginning, but it does not have a distinct end. And so it's different in kind. The same thing as we're going to see in the very next chapter when he comes to the woman from Samaria down at the well. Drawing out the water and drinking the water quenches your thirst. The quenching has a distinct beginning, and then your thirst will return. It has a distinct ending. And what does he say? The water that I give, distinct beginning, you drink and you will never thirst again. No ending. It is a different kind of life. He is not saying to us, and we know this because we've interacted with the gospel enough, he's not saying to us, if you believe on Jesus Christ, you will never enter your grave. No, what he is saying to us is, you believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, and even though you die, yet you will live. That is a very distinct difference than any hope that can be offered in this world. The best thing that this world can offer is to push that date out some, but it cannot solve that problem. We can't solve that problem physically, and we sure as all get out cannot solve it spiritually. We cannot make ourselves immortal, because immortality is not just a problem that we will end up dying of old age eventually. The reality is we can't insulate ourselves from all accidents or what-ifs. Things happen all the time. And Jesus is interacting with Nicodemus on this level, and he's standing here speaking in the midst of his disciples. And today's, today's passage sets up for us. Um, I, I hate to make all of this leading up to John 3.16, but there's a reason why there's a stereotypical quotation of John 3.16. It's because it's so centrally succinct, and it is the culmination buildup of everything that we're looking for. So I want you to stand in honor of God and his word. We're going to read John 3, 9 through 15. And we're going to try with all of our might not to quote John 3.16 today. We'll see how it goes. Let me back up one verse just to remind you. Verse 8. The wind blows where it wishes, Jesus says to Nicodemus, and you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. Nicodemus said to him, How can these things be? Jesus answered him and said, Are you the teacher of Israel, and yet you do not understand these things? Truly, truly, I say to you, we speak of what we know and bear witness to what we have seen, but you do not receive our testimony. If I have told you earthly things and you do not believe, how can you believe if I tell you heavenly things? No one has ascended into heaven except he who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. Our Father, we pray for wisdom 
And we pray for delighting hearts. We pray that as we look at your word, you give our eyes ability to see. And you give our hearts an ability to love those things that you have said. Father, we thank you for the words of Christ here on these pages. Not only inspired and written down, but preserved and maintained throughout history and now illumined to the hearts of your people, we pray for these miracles. And we thank you for them. We pray, Father, that the truth of Christ's words here preserved for us challenge our hearts and delight our minds to see your plan of salvation worked out through the history of your interaction with your people and coming down even to this very day. We thank you for this in your son's name. Amen. Amen. You can be seated. Now I'm going to try my darndest not to quote John 3.16 today because I, I really don't want the previous verses that are building up to that, that culminating statement to be only about that, because Jesus actually has remarkable things to teach us here. There's two massive references to the Old Testament. We're going to be visiting them both. And so if it takes you a little time to find something in Scripture, especially the Old Testament, I'm going to go ahead and give them to you because we are going to go to them. One is Daniel 7. You can have a finger there. And the other is Numbers 21. So when Jesus refers to Moses lifting up the serpent in the wilderness, we're going to see that short story, and also the reference to the Son of Man, Daniel 7, perhaps one of the most important prophecies in all of the Old Testament, and no, I am not exaggerating. And unfortunately, it's one that most people are not familiar with. We're going to spend a little time in both of those, but we're not even going to get there until verse 14. So for right now... John chapter 3, verse 9. Nicodemus responds back to Jesus about this nature of the Spirit. Nicodemus, and I call Nicodemus's story the tragedy of Nicodemus because he has the law of God. He has the training in the law of God. He has the scriptures. He teaches them. He knows the people of God. He serves. He's a ruler in Israel, in the temple, in Jerusalem, on Mount Zion. And he does not know the necessity of of a new spiritual life. He only knows enough to see the signs. He's only familiar enough to see the signs, but the reality is that the picture of the necessity of new spiritual life is depicted all through the Old Testament, all through the prophets, all through the law. The law came to us to show this reality about us. It responds to our pride by giving us more and more commands and showing us what real holiness looks like. And that in our natural state, we are condemned to the ground. So that we seek a mercy and a humility in walking with our Lord that is not ours naturally. It speaks of the reality that God's covenant, once written on tablets of stones, will one day be written on human hearts. How can that be unless God gives them new hearts? And that is indeed exactly what he was referring to in Ezekiel. And Jesus is referencing these passages, referencing them and showing him, look, you have to be born of water and the Spirit. You must be both purified and born again, born from above. An inability of anything in this world to bring about such a change. And that is why when some people make a false religion out of Christianity, it looks like every other false religion in the world. 
even though it has true aspects to it, even though it'll have aspects to it, all it will be will be a set of rules to make God happy. Naturally, we do not have that ability. That is what the law showed us over and over and over again, all through the Old Testament, all through the Sermon on the Mount, all through the Gospels. Jesus was preaching the same thing. The book of Acts, the apostles were preaching the same thing. All through it, what? You must believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and be born again. You must come to a new life. And then we spend all of these letters of the epistles writing these churches, fixing erroneous doctrine. One of the most early ones was the epistle of Galatians, which came up and says, do you actually think that you can live the life of the spirit by the efforts of the flesh? In fact, he uses some of the most derogatory, mean language in all of scripture to belittle their understanding of these things. He calls them stupid for believing that you could actually, just through simple acts of natural flesh, carry on things that belong only to the Spirit of God. That is why he ends that whole discussion with these things that become, these virtues that become ours as Christians. He describes them not as the fruit of good exertion or the fruit of righteous Christians. He calls them the fruit of the Spirit. This is what the Spirit brings forth in people's lives. And here's the thing. It doesn't look like excitement. It doesn't look like exuberance. What does it look like? Love, joy, deep-seated peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. That's not going to make any headlines, is it? We have a flair for the extreme in our culture. We hear a list like the fruit of the Spirit, and we're like, okay, that's, that's a nice list to memorize. It sounds kind. I guess it sounds nice and things like this. That is the central aspects of the Christian life. That is everything that should delight us. We should love to walk with people that look like this, that are joyful, that are kind, that are temperate, that are self-controlled, that are faithful. That should be what our hearts sing towards. And Nicodemus here is looking for something else entirely. We want somebody that's obedient and good and right and well-behaved and especially does what the Sanhedrin says. That's not how this really works. That's not how it works. That is not how salvation comes. To liken the management of an organization like the Sanhedrin to salvation is to miss the whole point of the gospel. The Sanhedrin was a rulership of this world. The gospel is not. The way that we carry on, even in our businesses, we show up on time, we get rewarded with, with uh, raises or whatever the case may be, or just keep our job in downturned economies or whatever the reward is for doing a good job and showing up on time and doing all of these things, that does not translate to the gospel. We do not do good things and all of a sudden earn more grace. Grace, to be grace, must be freely given. Not earned, not anything. We have entire epistles in the New Testament that are describing these things, but Jesus here puts it in a couple of sentences. Nicodemus is confused about this. Basically, 
How can this be the way of it? How can it be that in following the law of God, that in teaching the law of God as a Pharisee, that in ruling the people of God as a member of the Sanhedrin, how is it I, Nicodemus, have missed this? And what does Jesus say? You're a teacher of Israel, and yet you do not understand these things? Truly, truly, I say to you, we, note the plural, we speak of what we know and bear witness to what we have seen. But you, and again, the weakness of English, that is a plural you, not a singular, y'all, if you will, Y'all do not receive our testimony. What's he referring to? He says, Nicodemus, this isn't me just saying these things. You heard John the Baptist. He gave you his testimony, and he said very plainly that it was the Spirit of God who alighted onto me and did not leave. And he heard a voice out of heaven declaring that this is indeed the Son of God. You have the Spirit of God, His testimony, the Father, His testimony, passing through John the Baptist, His testimony, Jesus' testimony, not only as Jesus of Nazareth, but as He will soon identify Himself, the Son of Man who descended from heaven and has actually seen the other side of salvation. In addition to that, you have the disciples standing there who have also seen these things, Two of them used to be disciples of John the Baptist, and they were present at Jesus' baptism. What is John doing for us? He's building up a full case filled with eyewitnesses. And he's saying to Nicodemus, Jesus is saying to Nicodemus, you are not receiving our testimony because it goes against what you wish it would otherwise be. What does he say? We have spoken of what we know. It doesn't matter that you don't know. It matters that we know. And on top of that, we are bearing witness to what we have seen, but you do not receive our testimony. And so he tells him, he says, if I have told you earthly things and you do not believe, how can you believe if I tell you heavenly things? In other words, you're not even interpreting the signs properly. Those are the earthly reflections of heavenly realities. Do you truly think you have the heavenly realities right when you don't even have eyes to perceive the signs on earth? That's a really penetrating question. Because here's the thing. Nicodemus did see the sign, and so did the Sanhedrin, and they got the sign right. They knew that he was from God. But as you know, in retrospect, how small a piece of that story is, That can apply to any writer of the scriptures. That can apply to any prophet. That can apply to any king. They come from God. They bear the works of God. How small is that worldview to say that that's the compendium of what you know about Jesus? It's kind of like when we go out to our culture, and if you go to the side of the street somewhere and you start asking people about Jesus of Nazareth, do you know what the number one response you're going to get is? Who's a good teacher? Now, is that true? Yeah. Is that even close to all of what's true? Not by a long shot. That's such a small piece 
of the reality of the gospel. Sure, Jesus is a good teacher, but that's not enough. And if you go into a lot of churches, do you know what you will get as a response? He's a good example. Is that true? Sure. Is that the gospel? Not even close. And yet how many people make Jesus' example the gospel? Here's what he did. Here's what he said. Here's his laws. We'll just follow those as the Jews followed Leviticus. That's not how we do it either. We must follow the law of Christ as already fulfilled in Christ, which means there's no condemnation to those who are in Christ. We get to follow the law that leads to life, not we must. We will follow the law of Christ because the Spirit of God sees to it in our life. We will be presented faultless before the throne of grace because Christ sees to it that he loses none of his own. Do you see how different that is? And how small it is to just say Christ was our example or Christ was our teacher. These are true and they are not the point. Any more than going to the book of Leviticus and saying these are the laws that the people of Israel were to follow. That is true, but that's not the point. The point is that God is holy and we are not. The point is that by believing on his salvation and on his gospel, on his Christ, we may have life. A life that by definition we do not in our natural state possess. And it's not just an extension of our earthly life. It is a different life entirely and in kind. And thus, a new birth. And thus, not of the flesh, but of the spirit. Thus, not by our actions and exertion, but by God and his work. It is very, very common to talk about salvation only from our perspective. Here's what God did for me. Wonderful, not the point. That cannot be the sole aspect of our testimony. When we testify about the gospel of Jesus Christ, when we come together in fellowship as a church, it shouldn't be your life or my life or our fellowship or our church that's on display. It best be Christ. And this is why. Because otherwise we will lose the gospel. And we will exchange the gospel for the cunning ways of mankind to make people better than they once were. But that which is born of the flesh is just flesh. It may be well-behaved flesh. It may be poorly behaved flesh. That which is born of the Spirit, and that is rightly capital S, the Holy Spirit, is spirit. And Jesus says that these things are given by the testimony of witnesses. Just like in any court of law, you cannot have it established on one person. If, if um, I'm going to get in trouble again for using someone as an example. So um, I'm going to pick on my brother. Gideon, how are you? Gideon, if you say that I stole your car and you're the only witness to this and I deny it and we go to court of law for this and your car is just gone, like someone threw it in the river or something, no, no 
proof of this, no proof, no video, no nothing. What's going to happen when we go to court? He said, she said. There's, there's absolutely nothing you can do with that because there's not a multiplicity of witnesses. This exists not only in our time. We actually pull this from Greek and Roman society. There must be multiple witnesses. They pulled that from Hebrew society in the Old Testament. There must be an establishment of two or three witnesses. There has to be, because otherwise you have to wait for videos to be uh, you know, created. You have to wait for physical evidence and all these other things. So witnesses was the way to establish things, things that were true. And so how can we establish, for instance, that Jesus has actually come from heaven? What do you think his baptism was all about? Why do you think there was two witnesses from heaven, the Father and the Spirit both, so that not just John the Baptist, but multiple people there were there to witness it that day? And as, as Jesus says, it's not even just my words that are a witness for me, it's my works. And so he says this at a later place in John, and here John just writes to every skeptic imaginable, and he says, Jesus says, if you don't believe my words, at least believe my works. And see, this is where Nicodemus was at. He was iffy on the words, but at least he believed the works. But as Jesus says, it's not enough to just recognize that what Jesus did was to be a healer or a miracle worker sent from God. This is why when we come to the idea that Jesus is just a good teacher. That's not enough. He's just a good example. That's not enough. He's a miracle worker. That's still not enough. He was a righteous man. Not enough. He is God. Born of the Spirit. This is why we have the testimony of the virgin birth of Christ. Born of the Spirit that what he did was always good and always righteous and always holy. Why? Not because he earned his godness, but because he was and is and always will be God himself. That is what is twisting Nicodemus's mind into knots. How could we ever imagine that a human that's already been born becomes born from above, all new again. And it breaks every paradigm in his mind. And so he's just like, this is ludicrous. How can a man be born? Does, does she go into his mom's womb again and get born again? Like, it doesn't make any sense. The language you're using doesn't make any sense. And Jesus just goes like, yeah. You're thinking of earthly things. But you don't even get the point of the signs nor the point of why I made the wind to blow the way it blows. You're not even picking up on the natural signs well. You're not even picking up on earthly things and you won't believe me when I say them about them. How will you ever believe my testimony about heavenly things? Imagine coming to Christ and trying to correct him based on your perspective. Sound like a safe place to be? No. Let me spin it around a bit and make it a little more personal. Imagine coming to the Scriptures and trying to correct them because of your perspective. Sound like a safe place to be? I will tell you from the culture I grew up in. I just turned 39 a few weeks ago. 
I've only ever known a culture that was running as fast away from God as possible. That's the only thing I've ever known. And in my culture, it's purely normal, common, and natural to think of this world as only matter. That it essentially created itself some odd billions of years ago. And that we are bumping around as atoms and protoplasmic things that somehow got consciousness and grew arms and legs and feathers and scales and skin and hair. That's the culture I come from. If I were to just bring my cultural context to Scripture and say, I must judge Scripture by my perspective, how much would I miss? I would open the pages of Scripture and automatically say, you know, this God guy sounds like he doesn't understand his world. Because I'm starting with a different ultimate truth. And I would almost come to it and say, this Satan figure seems to have some things figured out, doesn't he? God says certain things will happen if you eat the fruit. Sounds like a lie because they didn't really die that day. But see, it misses the point, though it states something true. In the day they ate of it, they didn't die because God was gracious to them and extended their life by providing a sacrifice on their behalf and clothing them with those skins. And the half-truths and everything else come out of it, and it taints the way we think about everything from the very first sentence to the very last. Because the Scriptures do not vie to be one authority among many, they vie to be the authority to the people of God. And so when we approach it by saying, I must grade this by my perspective, or as Nicodemus is doing the same thing with the literal word of God walking around in front of him, saying, my perspective must grade your claims, Jesus says, then you won't ever receive my testimony. It's not going to happen. You're not going to receive our testimony. Why? What does he say? We speak of what we know. But you're not even going to believe me about natural things. How on earth will you ever, actually turn a phrase, how on heaven will you ever believe me about heavenly things? If we already call into question everything that Jesus of Nazareth is doing and saying we must come and grade you, we must weigh you and see if you're found wanting, that's not what Jesus claims to be. Jesus is claiming ultimate authority. He is claiming to be the one that singularly has the knowledge of heaven and earth. And it blows Nicodemus' mind. Watch what happens. Verse 12, if I have told you of earthly things and you do not believe, how can you believe if I tell you heavenly things? No one, no one has ascended into heaven except he who descended from heaven and then he uses his favorite terminology for himself the son of man what what is he claiming for himself most of us are not familiar with perhaps one of the most important prophecies in scripture and so i'm going to take us to it this day turn with me to daniel chapter 7 
Daniel, if you are not aware, is very famous for the narrative sections of his uh, prophetic uh, story here, the, the lion's den, the fiery furnace. Uh, even people have tried his, I don't recommend his diet of vegetables and water, but you're welcome to give that a shot. Um, he's very well known for those. He's much more known for some of his prophecies regarding the end of the world, especially in chapter 12 when it comes up to the clearest depiction of the resurrection of all of humanity at the end of the age in the Old Testament. It's in Daniel 12. It's fantastic and phenomenal. It is unfortunate, and that is a very light term to use for what I'm actually feeling about this. It is unfortunate that we are not familiar with Daniel 7. Because here we have one of the grandest prophecies regarding the incarnation of Christ that Christ applies for himself everywhere. And I want you to see this because it's the full incarnation prophesied in the Old Testament. It's even better than what Isaiah gave us. It is the prophecy of the Ancient of Days and the Son of Man. And I want to start in verse 9. Daniel chapter 7. Daniel says, As I looked, thrones were placed, and the Ancient of Days, marvelous title of, of God Almighty, took his seat. His clothing was white as snow, and his hair of his head was like pure wool. His throne was fiery flames, and its wheels were burning fire. If you want to know what those wheels are, you can read Ezekiel 1 and be confused. Call me in the morning. Verse 10. A stream of fire issued and came out from before him. A thousands of thousands served him, and ten thousand times ten thousands stood before him. And the court sat in judgment, and the books were opened. I looked then, this is Daniel speaking, because of the sound of the great words that the horn was speaking. And as I looked, the beast was killed and its body destroyed and given over to be burned with fire. As for the rest of the beast, their dominion was taken away, but their lives were prolonged for a season and a time. Don't worry about all that yet. Verse 13. Then I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man. And he came to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him. Watch this description. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which will not pass away, and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. As for me, Daniel, my spirit within me was anxious and the visions of my head alarmed me. I approached one of those who stood there and asked him the truth concerning all of this. And so he told me and made known to me the interpretation of these things. Who is it that presents themselves before the Ancient of Days? One like a son of man, human qualities. One having humanity and then being presented with all dominion, not just some, everlasting dominion, which means he himself has life that does not end, qualities of divinity and only of divinity, human and divine qualities mixed together. Him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom. And does this kingdom sound familiar to anyone who's read the New Testament? All peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. And his dominion, being an everlasting dominion, will not pass away his kingdom, one that shall not be destroyed. When the kingdom of heaven 
came into this world in the person of Jesus Christ, the entirety of salvation's history shifted. Everything changed. The path to God was now clear and singular, Jesus being the way. The truth of God actually being born amongst us and speaking, truly, truly, I speak to you of things. The truth of God here with us. What is the result but that the effect of an everlasting dominion on those who serve an everlasting king would have everlasting life? This is the main title that Jesus used to describe himself. And so when you hear people say that Jesus didn't claim to be God, they do not know Daniel 7. They do not know what Jesus was claiming about himself. What he was claiming about himself is, yes, with your natural eyes, you see here, man. But the reality of the testimony of the Father and of the Holy Spirit and of John the Baptist and of the disciples and of myself being the Son of Man is that I know and speak of heavenly things that you cannot possibly perceive. Just think of how much the gospel is dependent on the revelation of God. Could you walk out into this world and piece together that God exists? Yes. That he is powerful? Absolutely. That he's eternal? Most likely. That he is far beyond your imagination? Yes. Infinite? Yes. We can learn all of these things from the natural realm. But could you know how salvation comes to the hearts of those that God calls? No. Those things belong to the realm of the Spirit and the realm of heaven. You cannot perceive them. All you can see is signs that you will almost certainly misinterpret. Here, Jesus uses the signs of wind blowing through trees. Here, the thing that Christ had done, turning water into wine and healing people and going about and doing different signs, saying, you can see these signs, but you can't even see the reason for them. And so he gives Nicodemus an old picture, an old sign, one that was written in the law that he would fairly well know and probably actually at this point in history have memorized because a lot of young Jewish men actually memorized the Torah. Can you imagine? Most Christians haven't read the Torah, the first five books of the New Old Testament. Memorized word for word. And so Jesus uses a picture from that. Not only does he use a quote from the prophets, he goes back to the law and says, Nicodemus is a teacher of the people of Israel, as a ruler of the people of Israel, as a teacher of the law. Let me give you a story from that then. You want to see a sign? And you want to know the interpretation of it and its connection to life? Let's go back to that sign. Just as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. I told you to put your finger in Numbers 21 earlier. Please turn there. What is this sign that Jesus is sending Nicodemus' mind back to? Nicodemus is asked one question, how can these things be? And this is where Jesus starts today's passage and just tells him how they can be. This is not just consistent with the testimony of John the Baptist and the Father and the Holy Spirit and even the Son of Man himself. This is consistent with the prophets 
And then Jesus turns the dial back further and says, this is consistent with the law. The signs that you see me doing and are misinterpreting as merely saying this man is from God speak to a reality much bigger than that. And that was foreshadowed in Numbers chapter 21. This is where Jesus sends our minds. Numbers chapter 21, verse 4 through 9. It's not a long passage, six verses. From Mount Hor, they set out by the way of the Red Sea to go around the land of Edom. And the people became impatient on the way, and the people spoke against God and against Moses. Again, not a very safe place to be. Why have you brought us up out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? For there is no food and there is no water, and we loathe this worthless food. Now, first of all, um, may I just call in mind their contradiction. There's no food, and I hate the food. Uh, There is food. God gives it to them every day. And there is water. He gives it to them from rocks. They want food that they like, and they want water that they control. We loathe this worthless food. And then the Lord sent fiery serpents among the people, and they bit the people so that many people of Israel died. And the people came to Moses and said, We have sinned, for we have spoken against the Lord and against you. Pray to the Lord that he take away the serpents from us. So Moses prayed for the people, and the Lord said to Moses, Make a fiery serpent and set it on a pole, and everyone who is bitten, when he sees it, shall live. So Moses made a bronze serpent and set it on a pole, and if a serpent bit anyone, he would look at the bronze serpent and live. A few things to point out. Those who were already bitten by serpents died. And God didn't take the serpents away. He let them stay amongst the people and gave them a way of salvation when they were bit. Can you think of a better picture of sin? I can't. Not only is it a serpent, which is just amazing, given Genesis 3, but it's also a reality, the fact that it still persists with us. And that God is not removing the source of that, but giving a solution to it. Call your minds back to the prophecies of Jesus' birth. You will name him Jesus, it says in Matthew 1, for he will save his people from their sins. And as Jesus is expressing in Nicodemus that night, just as Moses lifted up the serpent, you want a sign that you missed, Nicodemus? a sign where God's salvation is connected with life, just as Moses lifted up the serpent and put him up on a pole and everyone who looked at it would live, so must the Son of Man be lifted up. Now, this is one of the greatest things about John's writing. He always, he very often uses double meanings with things. The same lifted up terminology is applied to Jesus being lifted up to the cross is also applied to him at his ascension. And so when he says, I have come down to the earth that I may be lifted up, it means in both instances, not only come here to do the will of the Father, to be ascended back to the glories on high, it is to come here to do the will of the Father, to be lifted up to the cross. That he may be put down to the grave, that he be raised again to the glories on high. It is a simple, remarkable, double meaning that Jesus uses and that John includes here. And so he connects it with just a regular lifting up on a pole, but then by extension to Jesus' ascension. 
A remarkable thing. Turn back to John 3, and we can see how it works out. What does Jesus say about this? Just as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must, inevitability of God's purpose, so must the Son of Man be lifted up. And what will be the outcome of this but some of the most exclusionary language possible? Who is it that gets to live forever? Anyone who believes. This is John piercing straight to the heart of every reader. Because this is why he's writing the Gospel of John. That you may know that Jesus is the Son of God and that by believing you may have life in his name. And he says to us, he uses the end of Jesus' quote here to say, whoever believes in him who is lifted up may have eternal life. There is exclusionary language in this, and it's going to set you up for exclusionary language in John 3.16, which everyone kind of assumes is just God trying to throw love everywhere. It really isn't. It's God saying, here I'm going to quote John 3.16. It's just, it's inevitable. Here is how I have loved this world. This is my son, and I have sent him. I have sent him not so that you can see a good example or receive good teaching, though you will have both of those in plenty. I have sent him that whoever believes in him will not perish, which is your natural destination, but that by believing on him, you would live forever. You want to know God's love for this world? Look at Christ. You want to know his salvation plan for this world? Look to Christ. You want to know Christian fellowship? Look to Christ. You want to look for servant-mindedness or the fruit of the Spirit. Gentleness is properly understood. Faithfulness. Clarity. Dependence on Scripture. The authority of God. The glory of the things to come. The kingdom of heaven forever and ever. You want to see all of these things? Look to Jesus. And that is exactly what he is saying here. This is not just some feel-good thing that we can say at church. The reality is he was the one who made the world that we're standing in. This is why John introduces this in John chapter 1 and says, there's nothing that has been made that he did not make. Not one thing. Not one hair on any head, not one stone or pebble, not one grain of sand on any beach. He made it all for the glory of God. And John says, how do we know this? Because we saw his glory. It was full, not just of truth, but it was full of the grace of God. God did not owe it to us to walk amongst us. He did not owe it to us to save us. I promise you, you do not want what is owed to you. That is Romans chapter 4. What we truly want is what God graciously and freely gives. And we see this in his law, and we see this in Christ. We see this in the gospel. And my friends, my prayer, my undying prayer for us is that we see it in our fellowship. That we see it in our intentions. 
because while man plans his path, the Lord directs his steps. The last thing I'd want to do is fight against the Lord or stand between him and his people or stand between him and his revelation. May God be praised. Let's pray. Father, we are astounded by the things that Christ has spoken here. It is so close to the pride of man to assume that eternal life may be purchased with good works. But natural works do not inherit spiritual reward. Our Father, we pray that you work into us the humility to repent and believe in the gospel at all points, to delight ourselves in our God and set our feet on spiritual steps. We thank you, Father, for your gift of righteousness in Christ. We thank you that there is no condemnation to those who are in Christ, not because we are now well-behaved, but because Christ has gifted us his righteousness. And he has taken our sin, and we have looked at him high and lifted up and found life eternal. May Christ ever fill our vision. More than that, may even fill, fill our imagination. We pray in his name and in his name alone. Amen.